You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Our drug allows the brain to repair itself. We call it the cure. We're ready to move on to the next phase. This one. This is wrong, Will. This has the potential to change lives. Some things aren't meant to be changed. Does it work like we predicted? With one exception. The drug has radically boosted brain functioning. You mean increased intelligence? listening to the trailer for Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and the story is as follows. Will, a scientist in San Francisco, is experimenting with a drug that he hopes will cure his father's Alzheimer's disease. After his work is deemed a failure, Will becomes the guardian of Caesar, an infant chimp who was exposed to Will's drug. Caesar displays unusual intelligence, and Will decides to continue his experiment secretly. But as Caesar's intellect and abilities grow, he comes to represent a threat to man's domination over the Earth. The film is starring Andy Serkis, James Franco, Frida Pinto, John Lithgow, David Oyelowo, Brian Cox, and Tom Felton. It is directed by Rupert Wyatt and written by Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver. Join me for this podcast review. I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Dan Baer. Andy Circus for Honorary Lifetime Achievement Oscar. Yes. For the love <laughs> of God, yes. There's very, very few people I have on that list, but he is definitely one of them. Okay, so we have the uh, three main podcasters here today to talk about this 2011 film. One might say that podcasts together, strong, uh, but... <laughs> Here, uh, we've reviewed before in the past War for the Planet of the Apes. We actually reviewed that film when it came out theatrically in 2017. And we're doing a 2014 retrospective right now. And a part of me thought, hmm, we could do 2011's uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes for Poddemic, as Bianca uh, coined last week, which we're, I guess, calling these uh, Saturday podcasts now, (laughs) even though it's only applicable to the last, like, five minutes of the movie. But neither here nor there, it ties in nicely with... Um, a review of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, uh, which we will do in two weeks' time uh, to complement our 2014 retrospective as well. So why not just kind of tie the trilogy all together, right? So going back to the first film here, uh, and actually, I don't know if this was a first viewing for you guys or if this was a repeat viewing, and if if so, um, when was the last time you guys saw it? But I remember seeing this film actually twice in the movie theater in 2011. I was really, really, really high on this movie upon its release. And I'll get into all the reasons why. And it's interesting because now, going back and looking at it after the release of Dawn and War, um, my enthusiasm for this movie has gone down a bit. And I'll also get into the reasons as to why that is. So I'm curious to know, in terms of a reboot or not even just a reboot, but more of like a 
because it's it's not even it's uh, you know what I can't even call it a remake. No, it's definitely a reboot for a new franchise for the Planet of the Apes, um, a franchise. Like, what do you guys think of it ultimately, and how it pays homage to the original film and um, you know the start of this trilogy? Let's start off with uh, Josh Parham. Uh, well, I was kind of right there with you, Matt, back in 2011. Um, I really loved this film when I first saw it. It actually made my top 10 at the time. Same. Yeah. And I have not seen it in a in a while. It had been many, many years since I had revisited it. And when I returned to it for our discussion, I, I have to admit that I did recognize some more flaws in it than maybe I noticed before, but I still ended up really, really liking it. And most of that is because of everything revolving around the Caesar character. I think the stuff with the humans is pretty weak. And I even thought that when I first saw it and, but those flaws have revealed themselves even more to me now, but I still think everything about Caesar's journey in this movie is so powerful. And so, and that's where I think the movie is really the most intelligent in its storytelling and I still think that as an action spectacle, it's still really, really well done. So it's not quite as strong as I once thought it was, but I still think it's a really, really good movie. I agree. I think actually the character of Caesar across all three of these movies has had one of the most fascinating character arcs in all of cinema history, actually, if you ask me. And I love that his name derives actually from uh, Shakespeare because his story arc does have a Shakespearean quality to it. And it's that level of storytelling, like you said, Josh, that really, really gets you invested in his journey. Less, uh, I'm sorry, much more so than the uh, human characters, uh, like you said, which we'll get into in a little bit here. Uh, Dan Bear, what about you? What do you think of Rise of the Planet of the Apes? Uh, well, I was, like you guys, a big, big fan of this back when it came out. And I think that a lot of that um, was just because, I, and I remember this being a big sentiment at the time, like this had no right to be anywhere near as good as it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, like no one was clamoring for a planet of the apes remake or reboot after what Tim Burton did to it back in the early aughts. Is there a soul in there? <laughs> God. Uh. I know. Horror, horror <laughs> anyway, um, so, yeah, no one was asking for this movie. No one was expecting it to be any good. And then it came out and collectively blew our fucking minds. Um, and watching it today, I, I watched it a few times since I own it on Blu-ray. Um, and I think it mostly still holds up. Um, I There are a few moments where the CGI looks a bit like cgi but for the most part i and i think the reason is that the story has a really strong emotional hook to it um and has a really strong emotional pull and that's like mostly thanks to andy circus and the the fucking incredible work the visual effects people did on caesar it's just out of this world. Yeah. And for me, the film really works because 
right from the beginning, I'm emotionally invested in the story. I'm emotionally invested in Caesar. And frankly, I'm invested in John Lithgow's character, too. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, that there is a um, investment in the human story through John Lithgow's uh, character, who is uh, suffering from Alzheimer's uh, disease that Will is trying to find a cure for. And it's interesting because I feel like James Franco is heavily miscast in this movie i don't think he's bad i just think that he's serviceable and this role could have just been played by anyone i also find it very odd that he's like this established scientist in his career when he's like probably in his what early 30s i I don't i'm not exactly sure um so there's a lot of like unbelievable stuff here and i think he was just cast for the name recognition uh part of it all in, in the end Uh, So I don't really like him in this that much, uh, or rather, he just doesn't do anything for me. Frida Pinto, I feel like, is completely wasted and is there for honestly no reason at all, I find. I don't think she has any real bearing on the plot or the emotional element of the story for Will's character. Um, And then the part in the movie where they could have done that, they do a time jump for five years, and it's like goes right from the beginning of their relationship to boom they've been in a relationship for a couple years and we're just supposed to like buy it without any kind of romantic chemistry whatsoever yeah so you have that and then you also have then these caricature uh quote-unquote human villains played (laughs) by like brian cox uh tom felton who is cast uh in (laughs) you know it's like Oh my gosh he is tight he's continuously typecast time and time again uh to be that Draco Malfoy type of character. Um, but it's <sighs> David Oyelolo also like the cunning uh, businessman with a twirling mustache. I, I just like I roll my eyes uh, at all of these characters throughout. None of them did anything for me um, except for John Lithgow, which I got to give him credit for. Honestly, I feel like that's kind of the point. <laughs> You know, like, mm-hmm. by, and, and it's really interesting to me because by how two-dimensional the characters are and how typecast or non-cast the actors are, it makes Caesar that much more alive and interesting and m- even more of an achievement. Like, I, think I think I'd agree with that to a point, though human person in it is the ape (laughs) yeah Yeah, to a certain extent i would agree with that i think my major issue with most of the human characters though is not necessarily that they're two-dimensional it's just that i feel like everything in their story just seems so lazy like Mm. like for instance the relationship between the franco and frida pinto characters like the moment they meet it's like wait like he just goes to the zoo to get like these stitches for caesar's like do they know each other like how did he get in there like what is the basis of their relationship to even begin with and he just, he like just shot his shot he was like yo can i take you out for dinner i'm like okay frank oh jesus exactly it just seems so incredibly lazy to me and yeah that's my big issue that whenever we are not with caesar we are just with characters that not only are pretty shallow but they're going through a story of just such broad strokes and it just there's not even an attempt to make them in a more complex or more nuanced uh, relationship with each other and i just find that to be the most taxing thing with those characters but to dan's point though it does work 
inadvertently, I think, because it does make Caesar's story stand out that much more then. Um, you can argue that definitely works against the movie as a whole. I wouldn't argue with you on that. But in terms of displaying a contrast and uh, trying to get the audience emotionally invested in one specific character versus everybody else, I can see maybe why there might have been a deliberate attempt to dumb down these storylines a little bit more. Because if we were more emotionally invested, I think then it would be working against the themes that the movie is going for. I understand that from a character perspective, but I think there are certain plot mechanics, too, that are... Like, I don't think you need to sacrifice that necessarily in order to make Caesar a stronger character. Mm. I mean, Caesar is already fundamentally a stronger character because they Mm -hmm. rely Mm -hmm. on basics of storytelling to display his arc in the movie. You know, it's like you forget. I mean, I know I forgot so much of his story uh, does not rely on dialogue, but on action. Mm-hmm, and yeah. what you, you kind of go back to is you go back to uh, bare bones of like silent era filmmaking or um, you think about like Pixar and their storytelling and how they rely on finding these subtle but very simple uh, nuances to really just tell a basic human story that appeals to people on a universal level. And I really, really dug that here, especially um, when he comes in contact with the other apes. Um, and the, 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 it's so simple. It's very, very easy. But the, it's given the right amount of care and the right amount of time to develop organically that by the time we get to the end of the film, it feels very much like uh, like Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring in the sense that it's like, OK, this this section of the journey is over. The groundwork has been laid. And we're exactly right where we need to be for there to be a fulfilling sequel to take us more along this journey. It doesn't need to be um, a full takeover of the Earth, humans versus apes, and so on and so forth. The story ends exactly where it needs to be because of that organic storytelling. Yeah, and I have to say, while I share your... um apathy about franco in this part i really think he nails the ending he nails that scene and that scene is really key yeah i mean franco as an actor is already kind of a mixed bag you just you sometimes never know what what version of him you're going to get in the movies is he going to be somebody who cares or not and i think that for the most part yeah you're not really that invested in his performance he has moments where he does shine but i it does sort of feel like Mostly, it just looked like he was waiting for the check to clear (laughs) in most of his scenes. (laughs) I mean, focusing a little bit on Andy Serkis' performance here. um, Oh, yeah. Jesus. There's such sadness in Caesar's eyes and just so much emotion expressed through the facial uh, reactions that he gives. I think of that scene a lot where he drops him off at the... um, the uh, uh, primate shelter that Brian Cox runs and uh, mm-hmm. just through the glass, the grunting, the heavy breathing through the nostrils, the, like it's really, really, really accurate in terms of ape behavior. But there is that human element to the performance that I know is still debated to this day in terms of motion capture and how much of it is the computer versus how much of it is Andy. I get that. But I do not believe for a single second that if this was all computers and it did not rely on Andy Serkis's performance that it would be as good I mean really if if it was not Andy then the the people who worked on this movie 
are not such geniuses that their work could not be replicated, you know, mm-hmm. like, and they've worked on, I'm assuming other movies besides just the planet of the apes. This oh, planet it's, it's, it's Weta. Yeah. So avatar and yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So like they, <laughs> the, just because they would have been able to recreate that success somewhere. They would. I'm sorry. They wouldn't have been able to recreate that success somewhere if mm-hmm. part of it wasn't that human element. And there are like these very impressive CGI sequences, especially in the third act, outside of just Andy Serkis's uh, yeah. performance in this. Like I think of that moment where the big giant uh, gorilla ape uh, charges the the horse. You know, so and cool. like. There's so much great work going on there uh, just from a visual effects standpoint. I, I understand that they had actors in motion capture suits on a um, – I believe it was a soundstage, if I remember correctly, for that final bridge sequence. Yeah. And the thing that I really, really appreciate a lot about the way that Rupert Wyatt uh, directs that final scene especially is the sense of scale, the geography. And the action is very, very clear, allowing for the visual effects to really – shine and not be obscured or hidden by anything even with the fog element they could have used that as a cover to hide some visual effects and maybe they did maybe they did but they also found a way to work it into the scene that i really really liked a lot so there's a lot at play in that final sequence that just aids in the storytelling and it you know like like we like we're saying here it's a very, very solid blockbuster film that is so much better than it has any right to be as a result of that. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It, it certainly is. And I think one of the things that really helps it is that sense of perspective that you get with Caesar. And it allows the movie to actually be a big action spectacle, but also tell a story in a somewhat unconventional way that we normally don't see in these movies. We've already mentioned that all of those scenes are usually without any dialogue. So you have to rely on actual visual storytelling to get your themes across. Mm -hmm. And it's so refreshing to see that in a movie with this kind of spectacle from a major studio like that. And while the human stuff significantly less so, I still think there's plenty in this movie that does and uh, indulge in some really smart ways to go about a storytelling that I just find so interesting. I also wonder too, like how much of it were they aware that they wanted to carry into um, future sequels or did the sequels just look at this first film and then take elements that were in this first film and incorporate it into their screenplay? Because for example, like the introduction of the Koba character happens in this movie, which was something that I had completely forgotten about actually, because he's yeah. such a central figure in the second uh, movie and I really really love this very tiny moment at the end where David Oyelowo is in the uh, helicopter and instead of Caesar being the one to push the helicopter off of the bridge it's Koba that does it instead and there's a lot just in that one simple decision there the fact that Caesar as a leader doesn't need to get his hands dirty like that and it kind of helps to keep our empathy an emotional investment with him because he's not like a cold-blooded murderer type. And instead you give that decision to Koba and it also like infuses his character with development for the second film and how he's been mistreated by humans and how much he hates them. And it's like, it's just the storytelling and this is so smart. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm continuously impressed by all of the work that is given to the apes. Um, less so the humans. They, they got the humans, I think, better in the, subsequent two movies but 
the apes have always been well i didn't want to use a pun here but for lack of a better word strong <laughs> apes together strong yeah i think the apes is an element in all of them yeah, yeah. Yeah, they've always been the most interesting. They've always been the main characters. It's part of the reason why I think my favorite one of the three is War, because in that film, Same. it's less about the humans the most and all about the apes, the entire journey. So I think that's saying something, probably. Uh, a couple things I want to uh, mention here that, um, you know, that we didn't bring up. So and I'm going to get into specifics. Uh so we talked about how there's like no words, it's all visual storytelling with Caesar's interactions with the other apes. That scene with Tom Felton, oh. where he says the line, get your stinking paws off me, you Gosh. damn dirty ape. Okay, could be an eye-rolling mm. moment. Instead, I went, ha, yes, in the theater. I remember when he said it. I'll never forget. And then the camera whips around to Caesar. He rises Sorry. up and he lets out that no. Silence in the movie and in the movie theater too. Mm. And then he whacks him, the music comes in. That is a great cinematic moment. Excellent, excellent that moment. Scene is just like they knew exactly what they were doing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. it is yeah. Just it, like an, another way, like just very, very smart filmmaking. Like, we're gonna give the audience this moment of, uh, you know, from the original movies and then we're going to give them an even better one of our own exactly yes yeah i well, love that i would slightly disagree about the um the damn dirty eight line i actually do kind of find that to be eye rolling like most of the references to the original movie in this film <laughs> um but the moment where caesar does say no and then the sound drops off like that moment is so great that it makes up for what i do consider to be a bit of an eye roll right before it and then and it just goes to show you how many smart decisions there are in this movie that there can be something that I'm not that much of a fan of. And then two seconds later, I'm like right back into the movie cheering it on. I mean, like another homage to the original film are like them wielding the spears and they uh, they're on top of the building with like a bunch of them at one point. And I, I, I OK, like I find it clever that they're paying homage to the original film with something like that. I also like that it's um, a real world um tool and not something that you know they like found time to actually craft and make spears themselves they like actually like ripped out from a what was it like a fence or something if i remember correctly right yeah 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 pieces of a fence so you know there's little things like that and once again like i can kind of roll my eyes at it but it's not like so heavy-handed that it totally pulled me out of the movie um I, what i really really like about this in particular like i said is that it's not a straight up remake it is a reboot that's telling its own story while taking the basic fundamentals of the original planet of the apes movie and finding unique ways to incorporate what made those movies so strong into this yeah and even with yeah. that moment while i don't really like the line of, you know, take your filthy hands off me in the movie. What I do like about it is that it is a subversion from when we heard that line the first time, because that was the human speaking and the apes being surprised by it. And in this time, the context is the ape speaking. So yeah, that is a smart way to go about it. You know, the, the delivery is a little clunky, but the overall thematic vision of what they have in terms of linking it back to the first movie, that is much more interesting to me. 
And I'm also really happy, too, that this movie did not do or try to do some sort of a big twist at the end that could have then paid homage to the original twist uh, with Charlton Heston. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, we all know how Tim Burton tried to do something similar with Mark Wahlberg and uh, his Mm -hmm. version of Planet of the Apes. So I'm happy that there isn't a quote-unquote twist here. Instead, once again, it's instead a natural progression of this virus outbreak, which, you know, if you are familiar with the story and where the story is ultimately heading, you know, without kind of spelling it out for us or, um, you know, giving us too much detail, we all kind of watch that sequence and we all just go, oh, that's how it happens. Okay. (laughs) You know, and and so it's very subtle and it's not something that... Um, needed to blow our minds or anything like that. I really, really appreciated that approach as well. Yeah, and it works for people who haven't seen the original Planet of the Apes and don't know, because mm-hmm. you can. It's very easy to go, oh, okay, that's how it becomes a Planet of the Apes. I get it. Yeah. Which also another thing too. Is it just me, or are there substantially like just a lot more apes? in the final act of the movie than there actually are that he lets out, you know, out of the lab and out of the, um, the shelter and such. And like, it just seems like they just grow, you know, <laughs> exponentially, like way too much by the end, by the time we get to the end. Anyway, like minor nitpicks, but yeah. You know. <laughs> also too, I, another minor nitpick here, um, that neighbor, uh, that's constantly getting annoyed oh, by God. Will as father and Caesar is such an annoying character. I, 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 and there's like a throwaway line of dialogue where he's like, I'm a pilot. How do you expect me to get to work on time? You know, when his car gets damaged. <laughs> so naturally, of course, he is the pilot who spreads the virus at the end of the movie. And it's just like, oh, what a what a just a lazy human character that just served no purpose other than to just be that guy that it just annoyed us the whole movie. That fucking guy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, and that little twist at the end, which is just like, fine, whatever. You know, buddy, you could you you couldn't move. You know, they were there for like ten years, eight years, something like that. You know, with Caesar, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, yeah, let's get over to final thoughts. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. 
Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Final thoughts on Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, Whatever uh, little tidbits or things that we didn't mention or something you want to reiterate, Josh Parham, what do you got? Uh, Well, actually, the thing that came to mind is actually speaking of that pilot character that I agree with you. I don't really like him just as a character. I think he is pretty uh, shallow and lazily drawn, and you're not meant to get that much out of him. But he is a part of what might be my favorite moment of the film which is when he is threatening the john lithgow character and that's when caesar runs out to try to defend him and ends up beating that guy up and it's right afterwards when all the craziness settles down and he and caesar just looks at everything that he's done and he goes over to the lithgow character and just embraces him and you just see like the terror and disappointment and fear and doubt in his eyes and it's, to me, that is the best moment of acting that we see from from Circus and this character. It just conveys so much emotion and and it just and is able to do that by very little. You know, it's just looking off into the distance. And you know, bravo to Circus and the animators for that sequence because I think that is the moment to me where it's like I really fully buy Caesar as a character and. It's a tremendous moment of getting really subtle acting coming across through a a computer character. And I think it's truly, truly brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. That is a really good scene. And that's also where I wrote my note down, too, about uh, the sadness in Caesar's eyes, because um, I really feel like whether it was the animators or a circus's performance, whatever, it doesn't matter. There's a tremendous amount being conveyed there in that tiny moment. Josh, I definitely agree with you there. Uh, Anything else or... Uh, no, that that would be the main thing that I wanted to talk about. Bear? Uh, I just think this movie is a high point of 2010's action filmmaking. Um, it's just so smart in its film choice, in its filmic choices, um, if not always in its script choices. <laughs> But the way everything is put together is just done very smartly and with a lot of care. Um, the visual effects are, they probably haven't been bettered, I don't think, by anything else that's done mocap since. Um, and just, I mean, Caesar is an all-timer of a character. And this is only the beginning of his journey. Like, yes, I think it does. Um, get better and the story gets deeper and more interesting in the next two movies. But like, damn, they really kicked off this trilogy with a bang. And I, while it's not a movie that I like purposely go out to say, like, I really want to watch rise of the planet of the apes again. I, I do bring it out every once in a while for like someone who has somehow managed to not see it and every time i'm i just enjoy it all over again just like it was the first time i saw it yeah yeah i i I definitely agree with you that it's not a movie that i'm always like oh i want to go and revisit uh rise of the planet of the apes uh but i will say though that this is a very underrated trilogy that I don't think has ever gotten the proper recognition or do it really deserves. But every time it does get mentioned, uh, especially on like film Twitter, I do see people constantly praising it and such, but it just doesn't get talked about as much as like one of the perfect 
trilogies. You know, maybe because it's not a quote unquote like best picture type of contender or wasn't as big of a box office smash as something like the Pirates of the Caribbean orig- original trilogy. You know what I mean? But it is consistently across all three movies just such a natural progression of storytelling and character development and it all starts here and the foundation is very 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 strong so you got to give credit to this movie despite some of its flaws at least what it got right was it got caesar's character journey right at the very beginning so that his Mm -hmm. arc could continue across the other two movies um with that said you know one of the things i wanted to mention here was there's a line that said to um Will's uh, James Franco's character Will by David Oyelowo, uh, where he says something like, you know, everything about the human brain except how it works, which is, <laughs> you know, the type of screenwriting line that you put in the very, very beginning to kind of establish to the audience. All right. By the end of the movie, he's going to figure out how the human brain works, you know, um, and that's going to obviously display Will's arc. So we talked about like, you know, when by the time he gets to the um, uh, final scene with uh, Caesar in the, in the Red Woods. And uh, Caesar basically tells him, you know, Caesar is home, you know, and it's like one of those moments where I like that Will is always constantly like trying to protect him. And there is this uh, subplot about Caesar, like realizing uh, that essentially what he is to Will is he's basically a pet because there is always that fear and that danger that he, you know, could go get out of control and potentially hurt someone as he does at some points in the movie. And um, I find it just all like a really, really great uh, parallel arc for both characters, even though, like I said, Wills is not as strong. Uh, because for Caesar, when that moment comes where Will is able to finally take him back as a pet or just as a, you know, friend, protector, whatever you want to call it, Caesar chooses not to go and he chooses to stay behind because he has a greater calling, a sense of purpose. He's destined for something bigger than just being James Franco's buddy. You know, he's a leader. And <laughs> in that regard, it's a coming of age story for Caesar that I, I, I think is really fitting of the title, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So, I, I like I said, I, I definitely think that there are flaws with the character of Willness, and a lot of that is attributed, I think, sometimes to just James Franco's very uninteresting performance. But workmanlike, it's serviceable, it gets the job done. But there is deliberate effort paid there to uh, make sure that both of those characters have a satisfying uh, arc by the end of the film, to the point that I was a little disappointed that uh, James Franco does not make any other kind of appearance in the other two movies, if I'm being completely honest with you all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the second one came out, I was really like, oh, we're abandoning that character completely now? Okay. Mm -hmm. I think there's like a brief mention of it at one point where he's watching like a video or something Mm -hmm. of him. Yeah. Uh, And it was like his old um, lab recorded videos that he was uh, testing uh, when he was uh, analyzing Caesar at an early age. But other than that, that's it. That's the only reference we ever get again to the character of Will. And I I have to say, if there's one thing about this uh, trilogy that I wish they could have done was I really, really wish they could have found a way to bring that character back somehow. Uh, Because I I, I thought it would have just been very interesting to see how that character has changed. If that character is even alive. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe the character is just not alive. 
I guess we're supposed to take yeah. it that that's the case, right? I, I think in the second one, you're, yeah. it is implied that he did die in between those two stories. Um, although I will gotcha. admit that at the time, I was slightly disappointed not to see more James Franco, but that was influenced by uh, other reasons for me. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those were legitimate reasons. Sure, sure. Okay, uh, with that said, um, you know, this movie, I know in 2011, I would have graded it a little bit higher, but since then, uh, you know, there are just some, some more apparent flaws, and uh, the other two films, I think, outshined uh, this one that much more so that it left for room uh, for improvement that you maybe wouldn't tell at the time, but hindsight's 2020. I am going to give this a really, really solid 7 out of 10. Uh, Dan Bear, what about you? Uh, I am at an eight for this. Nice. I think I've always been at an eight for this. I don't think I ever went for the nine, but I think it's just, you know, I mean, like what I said, this is 2010s action filmmaking at its finest. Yeah. Pretty much. Definitely. That that scene on the bridge, man, is so good. So, so good. So, so good. So dynamic. There's so many elements at play there. Uh, and they're all used so properly. It's a great, great action sequence. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not a shame that it's like the only major action set piece in the entire movie either. It, it, it perfectly builds its way up to that. It earns it. Yeah, it earns it. Exactly. In, yeah, it earns it. And in that way, it's like it's kind of like classical almost in that way where like, you know, a lot of things from the 90s like they didn't have the budget to go full out so they saved the big action scene until the end you know there are lots of little ones that can't take place before that but the money maker is at the end of the movie after you know you've watched these characters build to this point and it this movie just does that really really well mm-hmm. definitely josh parm I'm also at an 8 out of 10 for this one, which I also think I've never really wavered on either, even though I probably do notice a couple more flaws in this movie than I did before. I still think that when this movie works, it still works so, so well. And I I think it is like one of the great uh, action blockbusters that we've seen in the, in the last decade. And I think it's so, so well done from uh, a character perspective when it comes to Caesar and just in terms of the storytelling, I think it's a really, really strong effort. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the film was nominated for uh, one Oscar for best visual <laughs> effects, uh, which it did not win. There Ugh. was a lot of talk as there has been actually for all three films across the franchise for Andy Serkis to get recognized for his performance uh, for the first film here and best supporting actor. Obviously, the subsequent two films, um, it was very, very hard for him to ever crack a best actor lineup. But I think then it just became about like, if you honor the visual effects work, you're in part honoring Andy Serkis, where it's like, I-, I could even imagine a world where the visual effects artists just get up on the stage and they're like, Andy, would you like mind coming up on the stage, you know, to accept this <laughs> with us? You know what I mean? Like, that's how integral, like, the visual effects and Andy Serkis's performance are to these movies. So looking at the 2011 Oscar year, such a weird year. Uh, the Oscar ended up going to the Best Picture nominee, Hugo, over uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And also, too, over Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part 2, the last film in that franchise as well. I, I Listen, I actually like Hugo. I know there's a lot of people that don't like Hugo. I love Hugo. But even I'm like, really? That's We're going to really use the Best Picture nomination rule to deny Rise of the Planet of the Apes in this case? Come on. And the thing Just is, I don't even think of that 3D Hugo, and like yeah, you're not wrong. And 
And yeah. the visual effects in Hugo, I actually do think are pretty good. I actually also like that there is a mixture of yeah. some CG and practical stuff in it. It's it's good work and definitely deserves a nomination. But I do think when you compare it against Rise of the Planet of the Apes and everything they had to do to make those characters emotional and people or, or characters that you would connect with, I just think that is such an undeniable achievement that to not recognize it of all the three losses that these movies have gone through with not winning visual effects. This is the one that stings the most to me. Yeah. I mean, visual effects society gave their award to rise of the planet of the apes. Hugo won the outstanding supporting visual effects award that year. So I think I remember, I remember uh, when it came time to predicting the Oscars now, if it were, if it were now, if it were today, I would have picked Hugo because of the Best Picture nomination. I would not have wavered. But at the time, I also remember thinking that the achievement of Rise of the Planet of the Apes and the combination of Andy Serkis' yeah. performance, I remember mm-hmm. thinking it just felt so undeniable. Even, like I said, up against Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part Two, which, you know, I was looking, I remember, for a way for the Oscars to reward that franchise with something. Yeah. And I, I, even, even with that strong of an argument, I still was advocating for Rise of the Planet of the Apes to come out on top. <laughs> Same. I, I remember predicting Planet of the Apes that year too, and looking back on it, yeah, I, I should have gone for Hugo. It's, it seems so obvious now, but at the time, I did think like this work is undeniable. Like, how can you not vote for yeah. it? And I think it was a bellwether to just say that the Academy at large just did not really care for those movies very much. And I think it's that is like going to go down as the ultimate tragedy with this series is that for all the incredible work they did to not have a single one of these films actually win an Oscar for their work is is pretty sad. It's mind boggling. It really is. I, I, and I love, I adore Blade Runner 2049. I still <laughs> yeah. probably would have given it to war for the planet of the apes <laughs> the same. i mean that's a little bit closer for me i, I love oh it definitely is yeah those, but i yeah. again like what they did to caesar as a character that is all most like a large Just, part of that is down to the effects and it's like to not reward that is kind of crazy to me and then for that year the only other thing i would uh argue is uh best supporting actor um i know for a fact i would try to find a way to find uh to put andy circus in my supporting actor lineup that year he was in mine <laughs> if i were to give him an oscar nomination over someone that did get nominated you have max von Sydow for extremely loud and incredibly close nick nolte for warrior jonah hill for moneyball kenneth brano for my week with Marilyn, and the oscar winner christopher Plummer for beginners um God rest his soul, rest in peace. I'm taking out Max von Sydow. Oh, I'd take out Jonah Hill. Uh, Jonah Hill is actually my fourth person I would take out, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not a great lineup anyway, so there's a lot of options there. Yeah, I mean, I could take out Kenneth Braun. The only person I probably wouldn't take out is Nick Nolte and Christopher Plummer. Yeah, and I actually love Brana's performance in My Week with Marilyn, even though Mm -hmm. it's, like, not great <laughs> yeah i i don't really like that performance but i'm just such a fan of kenneth branagh in general yeah. that i i can't take away an oscar nomination from the man yeah me neither i'm just saying if they had found a way to put andy circus and albert brooks in this lineup it would have been an all-time supporting actor lineup for me yeah <laughs> this would have been fantastic the saga of uh, 2011 but alas yeah such a weird year and it honestly i rewatched moneyball recently jonah hill's performance in moneyball is such a uh, it's such a nothing performance in my opinion 
compared to at least what he would do in Wolf of Wall Street a few years later, where there's like real character work. There's a voice change. He like really throws himself into it more. You know, here I just feel like he's like I've seen this performance from so many other people before. I just I don't I don't get it. I just don't get it. It's it was the like <sighs> he can really act domination. Yeah. Except like is he really acting or is he did he just take sleeping pills and go in front of the camera? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless, Andy Circus. I hope uh. to God. I, I don't even care because I've always imagined that at this point in his career, um, he needs now, because I, I, I don't know if he's ever going to make it for his directing work, especially considering he's directing Venom uh, for his uh, next movie. Yeah. But no. if he <laughs> if he ever gets like the right supporting role where he is just that type of character that, you know, calls attention to itself. It's an Oscar Beatty part, an Oscar Beatty film. Like, just get him a freaking nomination. My God, he doesn't have to win. I just really, really want Andy Serkis to have a nomination just so that he has some level of acknowledgement. I, I'm telling you, it's he's going to get the honorary like mm-hmm. in 30 years. That is like, 100% that's what's gonna happening. Happen. Yeah. Because the contribution, like people will eventually realize that, you know, everyone is you is doing this and he was the the progenitor of it and mm-hmm. he, I'm, I'm guessing that no one is gonna do it better i don't think anyone has done it better i think that the work that he has done as snoke as caesar as Gollum, as king kong In like long shot Oh, well, I mean, like, you know, are you talking to live action stuff? Yeah. Well, because no one knew that was him. Come on. No one. You know, just just remember something. All right. This this last year, Andy Serkis received the BAFTA for Outstanding British Contribution to Cinema. Okay. Yeah. So Academy, get on it. I I mean, I do agree. An honorary Oscar is in his future. It has to be. If not, like I said. He'll have some supporting role in an Oscar Beatty project and he'll just get that nomination and it'll just be like one of those career noms, like a um, like a Richard Jenkins in The Visitor type of thing where it's like, oh, we see you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. All right. Well, that'll do it here for our discussion of Rise of the Planet of the Apes here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Uh, Josh Parham, where can they find you on the Internet? You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dancing Dan on film. And you can find me on Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Rise of the Planet of the Apes here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. 
We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.